All right, we're gonna, we're gonna jump right into uh, today's message. We're, we're on a journey to the cross uh, leading up to uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and we'll um, read and, and understand him through his uh, death on Good Friday. I hope you make plans to be here for that. We're gonna have a, a Good Friday service here as well. And as we, as we move towards this, our goal is to, to understand Jesus better. Uh, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Christ and you said, hey, I'm all, I'm all in with Jesus, then understanding him is important to you. It matters to you. And, and we read the words of Paul, like in Philippians chapter three, where he talks about like, I want to know Christ and I want to know Christ so deeply that I'm willing to, to share in his suffering. And sometimes we fall a little short of that. We think, well, I really don't want to suffer, but I do want to know Jesus. But knowing Jesus is going to involve suffering as we're finding and as we read through uh, these uh, passages here in these few weeks. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not committed to him, if you're, you're not sure, you, you've got some questions, you've got some hesitations, I hope that as we understand Jesus better together over these few weeks, that you begin to see why so many people would say, I'm all in with him. I need him. I want him in my life right at the center. I hope your eyes are open to that as we go through. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. And uh, start in verse uh, 26 as we understand Jesus better through his sufferings today. Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus is predicting a time of testing for his followers. There's gonna be a test of your faithfulness and you're all going to fail. Any teachers in the room? Is that, is that how you talk to your students about the upcoming test? Guys, there's a test coming. It's gonna be so hard. You're all gonna fail it. Good luck. No, that's not how we, that's not how we talk. That's not how we want to be talked to. We wanna be given hope. We, we want somebody to believe in us. But Jesus knows this test is gonna be, it's gonna push them to their breaking point. And they're all going to fail. And Peter, like, like a good uh, student, I wonder, maybe he was 16, I don't know, because it sounds like a 16-year-old. Not me. Like everyone else, but not me. I'm special. I'm different. I'm more loyal. I love you more. I'm closer to you. I'm stronger. I will not fail. And Jesus has to tell him the heartbreaking news. Yes, you will. But even in this moment, Jesus is not rejecting these guys. He's saying, you're going to fail the test, that doesn't mean you can't be restored. That doesn't mean you can't be renewed. That doesn't mean we can't be in relationship, but this test is gonna push you to your breaking point. And that's how Jesus um, prepares these guys for what's about to come. You wonder if he had said, hey, the, the test is coming and I think you guys are gonna do great. And then they all fail. Jesus believes something about them that wasn't true, but he's being honest with them and he's, expressing the truth of what's, what's coming. And so that, that's gonna set up uh, Peter's experience in the passage today. So we're skipping ahead to verse 53. We covered the in-between sections last week. Um, so we're, we're picking up where we left off last week in verse 53. 
Then they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Uh, we have a scene uh, right in front of us here of horrible injustice. The Sanhedrin is the, the religious ruling council of, of Israel, which is a faith-based nation. And so the religious leaders are the leaders and they want Jesus to die. But they are not the political leaders of this region. Rome is in charge. And Rome has reserved the right to execute people. No one else can do this. The Sanhedrin cannot execute anyone. Only Rome can. So all they can do is put together a case against Jesus, take it to the Roman courts and say, hey, here's, here's what we think. Here's, this guy, is, is, he's, he's a bad guy and you guys should put him to death for us. And so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to put a case together and it's just not going well. This whole trial is just a mockery. They can't find evidence against Jesus, nothing solid. The people that wanna participate and speak out against him, they, they can't even agree on, on what they're accusing him of. They're, they're breaking their own rules when it comes to how they should conduct a trial to begin with. They're doing it in the, the high priest's house, which is not where they're supposed to have a trial. They're, they have a place for that. They're doing it at night, which is not when they're supposed to, to do this kind of thing. They haven't gone to look for witnesses for Jesus, only witnesses against, because you, you think it wouldn't be hard during Passover to find people who can say, hey, uh, I used to be blind and now I can see. Hey, I used to be lame and now I can walk. Hey, I used to be a leper and now I'm clean. Or even there were gonna be a few people in Jerusalem who could say, hey, I was dead and now I'm alive. There were people with life transformation testimonies about what Jesus had done, but nobody asked them their opinion. And so they, they put together this mock trial. The case is not strong. The witnesses don't agree. The accusations are so weak and they're really just emotional. They're not rational accusations to begin with. They basically come from a place of people saying, I don't like how he makes me feel. Still a reason today that a lot of people avoid, reject, keep a distance from Jesus. But ultimately the high priest invites Jesus to incriminate himself by asking him a direct question. Are you the Messiah? He has to answer. And the answer is, I am, I am. And then Jesus uh, gives a statement that's a direct connection to a, a messianic prophecy from the book of Daniel. So if you go back hundreds of years, Daniel has this vision and, and he records it in uh, his book, Daniel chapter seven. Uh, let me read this uh, for you, two verses. In my vision at night, 
I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, okay, you guys remember this vision? These guys were experts in the Bible. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, you're gonna see the son of man coming on the clouds, sitting at the right hand of the father. They knew exactly what he was talking about. He's saying, you remember Daniel hundreds of years ago? And he said, this is what the Messiah is gonna do. He's like, that's me. That's not the Messiah that you want, but that's who I am. And at this, the high priest tears his clothes right? This is, this is normal, right? This is what we do. You get mad at somebody and you start ripping your you know, shirts off and stuff. No, this is weird, okay? This is a cultural thing. It was their way of expressing outrage and indignation uh, at, at a great offense. It's, it's like, if you can imagine how you would respond when somebody says something bad about your mother. You're like, that's, that's kind of their response. It's like, you can't say that. That's, th- you can't talk about God that way. And they're so mad about this because they think, they think he's saying something false about God. That's what blasphemy is. But it's only blasphemy if it's not true, right? What if it's true? What if it's true that Jesus really is the Messiah? And they can't accept it. Why? Why can't they just believe that he is who he says he is? Doesn't that seem like that would solve a lot of problems if they would just go, okay, yeah, we're with you. If, you're the, if, you, if you say so, if you say you're the Messiah, we're with you. Man, it seems like that would, that would just have solved a lot. It would have been so much easier, but they can't see it because the type of Messiah that Jesus is goes against their assumptions that they have made and they have been living by their whole lives about what the Messiah was gonna be. The Messiah is supposed to support them. He's supposed to agree with them. He's supposed to justify and validate their power and their positions of influence over the people, and he does none of that. So he can't be the Messiah, can he? I wonder if we can see ourselves in the reaction of these religious leaders. I wonder if there are times when we say, well, I've, I've got my opinions, I've got my preferences, I've got the way I see the world, and if Jesus doesn't support that, maybe that's not the Jesus I'm looking for. And it leads to this mockery of justice that Jesus endures so that he can understand what injustice feels like. Let's pick up in verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word of Jesus. The word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter, a follower, a faithful follower, somebody Jesus called the rock, denies even knowing him. And it's easy to focus on that, and we'll circle back to that. This is definitely a betrayal of trust. 
But can we give Peter a little credit for just being here? I mean, where are all the other guys? And Peter's the only one who has the courage to show up and be in the courtyard where things are happening. He's in the danger zone. If, if this goes badly for Jesus, the first thing they're gonna do is round up his followers. And Peter's right there, an easy target. And so, yeah, the first, the first accusation comes and, and his fear gets the best of him and he denies knowing Jesus. But in this moment, wouldn't it be normal for a human being to go, oops, they've recognized me. I, I gotta get out of here or something bad's gonna happen. But he doesn't leave. He stays right, right there close. He's accused again. He denies it again. And again, he stays. He's accused again and he denies a third time. The rooster crows and his heart breaks. I think we can relate to Peter here. I don't, we don't think of ourselves as cowards, but we know that our courage comes and goes, right? Human beings are complicated. We're capable of heroic courage one minute and shocking cowardice the next minute. We're so much like Peter in this. And what happens to us is kind of what happens to Peter. We demonstrate a little bit of courage. He had enough courage to show up, to go to the courtyard, to be where no one else was. And when we have those little glimpses of courage, we, we start to stand up a little taller and look at ourselves a little different. You know what? I'm, I am a courageous person. Look how courageous I am. Look how bold I am. Look how, look how faithful I am. Look how loyal I am. Look how humble I am. And as soon as we begin to take pride in ourselves, that's when we're most susceptible to the temptation to fall. Paul expresses this really clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. This is what he says. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul says, when you start to acknowledge how awesome you are, that's when actually you're at your weakest moment. When you distance yourself from your own weaknesses, your own tendencies to fail, your own selfishness, your own, uh, the, the human nature that's in you to preserve yourself, to preserve your comfort and your convenience. When you distance yourself from that, man, that's when the enemy sees an attack point and comes after you and when you're most likely to fall. That's why it's so important for us to stay close. There are two words here that um, I want uh, us to look at. Uh, they're sort of related, apostate and apostle. Apostate and apostle. Apostate um, is a deserter. It's somebody who runs away for whatever reason. They turn and run. And uh, apostle is someone who is sent away. So both of these words, they're, they're Greek words. They're, they're the same root, very closely related. And they both carry this, uh, this notion of going away somewhere. But for the apostate, the motive is to go away out of fear or shame. But for the apostle, the one who is sent, the motive is to go because of the authority of the one who sins and the relationship with the one who sins. And Peter just flips back and forth between apostate and apostle. Don't, don't we? Aren't we always just one step away from one or the other, from going away, moving away from Jesus out of fear or shame? So we, we do this, don't we? Sometimes we, 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 we sin, we acknowledge that we sin, and we feel so bad about our sin that we think Jesus must be mad at us, God must be mad at us. And so I don't, I don't, 
I don't deserve to pray. I don't deserve to read my Bible. I don't deserve to go to church. We start skipping church because God's mad at me because I sinned. So I, I move away from him. Just like Peter physically moved away. So in the, in the first accusation, he's in the courtyard. You're, you're one of them, right? He denies it and he moves away to the entryway. He's further away from Jesus the second time than he was the first time. And that's what we do. We, we feel guilty and we let our guilt and shame push us away when really it should be driving us toward That's why proximity to Jesus is so crucial to us. That's why we encourage followers of Jesus every day to start with a surrender to Jesus. Hey, I'm all yours today. I'm all yours today. I need to stay close because we're always just a few seconds away from abandoning our call. You know, we're apostles, right? You know, we're, we're called, we're sent into the world to love the people around us, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, with the love of Jesus. We're called to point them to Christ with our words and actions. And we're always just, we're always just a few seconds away from abandoning that call and be, becoming an apostate out of fear, out of discomfort, out of inconvenience, or even shame at our own sin. When all of those things should be driving us toward the one who loves us, the safe place. It's only proximity to Jesus and dependence on him in his spirit that keeps us moving in the right direction. So a question that we have about Peter and this, this, this whole tragic moment of his failure and his biggest sin, this is Peter's worst moment. How do we know about it? You ever wondered? How do, how do we know? How does Mark, who wrote this, how does he know that this happened? How does he know it went down like this? There's one reasonable explanation. Peter told him, or he told somebody. Peter told people this story about his own failure, his own worst moment. Peter publicly shared his own worst moment, denying his Lord and Savior three times. But what I think is beautiful about that is Peter tells this as a beginning story, not an ending story. Because Peter gets to follow this up with a story of redemption and restoration and a renewed calling. I love, there's a, there's a story about an old evangelist named Brownlow North. Isn't that a great name, Brownlow? Um, Brownlow was a man of God and uh, he, he was faithful and a, and a well-known preacher in his time. But before he met Christ, he lived a pretty wild life. And one Sunday he gets up to preach in, uh, in this city and there's a big crowd there and somebody comes to him before the sermon and hands him a letter. So he opens the letter and he reads it and the letter says, hey, I... I know about this incident in your life when you did something really horrible. And if you get on that stage to preach, I'm gonna, tell, I'm gonna stand up and tell everybody what you did. So he takes the letter, gets on the stage and reads it and says, this is all true. I absolutely did this. But then I met Jesus and he forgave me and he restored me and he called me to a life of ministry. And he used his own shame as a magnet to draw people to Christ. This is what Peter did. It has to be. I mean, it's the other gospel writers record the same story. Peter must have told this story over and over. I denied Christ and he forgave me and restored me and called me to ministry anyway. And I wonder how many early disciples in that first century were encouraged by Peter's story 
Not, not of someone who never messed up, but someone who messed up as bad as you can mess up and was forgiven, set back on his feet and invited into the mission of God. I think it's beautiful. And I hope that you and I can do the same. We're gonna have stories of shame and failure. And I hope we can leverage those to point people to Jesus because of the forgiveness that we experience and the restoration that comes in our lives. So a couple of things that I think Jesus experiences uh, in uh, this part of the narrative today that I want us to just focus on uh, briefly. One is that Jesus knows injustice. What he experienced, this mock trial that he experiences at the Sanhedrin is injustice at its worst. No one to speak for him. It's all set up against him. And, and we know our world is full of injustice, Right? Since the beginning of human civilization, we've created systems that are set up to protect the rich and the powerful. And corruption continues around the world as people who had the misfortune to be born poor or to be born a certain ethnicity are oppressed, marginalized, neglected. And, and these forms of injustice persist even in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I think as followers of Jesus, we wonder, where's God? Where's God in the midst of all of this? And what we see in this account is that Jesus understands injustice. He has been a victim of injustice and he gets it and he's present. And it's his desire to work through the church to fight against those things. It's been really uplifting over the last few weeks to see the stories of how Ukrainian refugees are being welcomed and cared for and fed and protected from those who would take advantage of them and do them wrong. And I love, I love to see the beauty of that, those, the people in those border countries that are, that are welcoming these refugees and taking care of them. But we kind of have a short memory uh, globally because it wasn't too long ago, in fact, even as recently as last year, that some of those same countries were receiving refugees from Syria and those people were not treated with the same level of kindness and respect. And, and there, are, there are photos online still of Syrian refugees who are cold and hungry and alone. In some of those same countries that are welcoming Ukrainian refugees today. And I don't say this to diminish in any way the kindness that's being poured out. It's good and right and something to celebrate. What I, what I see in this is that our, our nature as human beings is, is, is just really easy. It's easier to be kind and sacrifice for people who are like us who look like us, who, who sort of think like us, who, who have similar history to us. And we're a lot slower to pour out that same kind of kindness and love to people who are different, who look different, come from different places. And what Jesus understands and then demonstrates to the world is that love is love across differences. Love is love when it's to people who, who are not like you. It's sacrificial when it comes to people who disagree with you on things that matter. Don't understand the way that you live. Jesus understands injustice and he has called us, his church, to push against it. Even with people who are not like us. The second thing I think I want us to see is that Jesus knows testing. His resolve is tested by the direct questioning of the high priest. This, this 
inescapable, are you the Messiah question gives Jesus an opportunity. And he has many opportunities in, this, uh, in these last few hours before the crucifixion to sort of make things a little easier on himself. Whether he avoids the cross or not, I don't, I don't think so, but could he, could he have made things easier? All he has to do when the high priest says, are you the Messiah, is kind of think, well, I know what he means by the Messiah, and it's not the same thing as what I mean when I say I'm the Messiah. So no, I'm not the Messiah that you think I am. But he doesn't back down. He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat the truth. He owns it. He knows testing. He was pushed to the point where he should have broken and he, he never broke. In contrast to Peter, who's, who, who puts himself in a position to be tested and he's pushed and he breaks and he's pushed and he breaks and he's pushed and he breaks, Jesus never broke. And so when we're tested, and isn't it comforting to know Jesus feels that? He empathizes with that. He knows exactly what it feels like to be pushed. In fact, he knows it even better than we do because we break. He never did. Uh, One of the most encouraging uh, verses for me in, in the New Testament is from Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. It says, we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Sometimes I think we we function as though Jesus can't relate to what life is like for us. And and this verse makes it really clear. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be tested, to be tempted. In fact, he knows it better than you because he has endured longer than you ever have, longer than you ever will. Because we break, he doesn't. And isn't it encouraging to know that when I'm tested and when I'm tempted, Jesus understands. And friends, if, if we believe what we say, and we, we say this, that the, the behavior of Christians shows non-Christians what God is like, right? The behavior of Christians shows non-Christians what God is like. Then anytime we're in the public arena, we're being tested. We have an opportunity to show people what God is like through our actions or to give people a false view of God through our actions, We're being tested. And in those moments of testing, we can lean on the reality that Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. And he has not only equipped and empowered us to pass the test, but he has provided his forgiveness and grace for when we fail. I think when we fail our tests of faith, we can allow guilt and shame to push us away from Jesus, just like Peter did. And I wonder what it felt like for him. In one of the gospel accounts, when Peter hears that rooster crow and, and he realizes what he's done, there, there's actually a moment when, when Jesus looks at him, makes eye contact with him. What did he see in the eyes of Jesus? My guess is he saw love, understanding, and a desire to restore. And friends, Jesus sees when, when you fail your test, he sees. He's looking at you. And we, we think, some of us have been taught that he's looking at us with judgment and condemnation. Well, I think he's looking at us with understanding and love and a desire to restore and set us back on our feet and invite us into the mission. 
We're going to close today um, with a prayer, a, a really old prayer. It's, it's uh, about 1,800 years old, um, traced back to an old desert father named Evagrius. Those guys had such cool names. We should bring some of those back. You might have a baby soon. You want to name it Evagrius? I think it'd be be awesome. Okay. Um, Evagrius prayed this very simple one sentence prayer and he prayed it over and over and he taught people to pray it because in this prayer, which um, we'll put on the screen. Oh, there it is. Um, We acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who has authority over our lives. He is our Lord. He is our King. We also acknowledge that we are sinners. We are people who fall and fail and fail to live out what he's called us to. And then right there in the middle, we acknowledge that Jesus also is full of mercy and grace. Sin is a problem. It's an obstacle between us and God. And we need to acknowledge it and deal with it. And as Keith led us before, we need to repent from it. And we look to Jesus for the mercy and grace. So I'm gonna invite you to pray this with me. Would you all stand? We'll close with this. Um, if you can memorize that real quick, you can close your eyes. If, if that's not kind of where you're at, maybe you can keep your eyes open. It's fine. I just want to invite you to pray. This is between you and God. You can do or don't. It's, it's, it's totally up to you. Um, I want to invite you. To, we're going to say this three times together, and then I'll close. And the goal is uh, we're, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to do something in our hearts as we acknowledge who Jesus is and who we are and what he has to offer us. So we're going we're gonna to go through this slowly three times uh, aloud. Would you pray with me? Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for your mercy. You see us in our worst moments. And you've called us to something so much higher. This life of reflecting your glory through our love, our compassion, our patience, our humility. Sometimes we let ourselves get in the way. And for that, God, please forgive us. We do it as individuals and we do it as a church. Please forgive us. We repent, Father. We turn our hearts back to Jesus in this moment. We lean on your mercy. May you use us now as apostles, as ones who are sent with the good news to point people to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.